Luke chapter 7. After he has finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who has built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. When he is not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes to my servant. Do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And those who have been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to the town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. He drew near the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died when being carried out, the son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. The bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. We're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to cover the first 17 verses. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for placing us here in this season to go about doing work in your kingdom. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to equip us. Not to do things out of our flesh, but to do things through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom on how to go about doing things. That you would give us discernment because there are so many needs here that anything we put effort to, it needs our help. But we don't want to do it that way. We want to do things according to your will. We want to do things according to your direction. And so, Lord, we ask for that here. And as we open your word, Lord, this morning, we ask that your spirit would minister to us. Not necessarily from the things coming out of my mouth, but how your spirit ministers to our hearts and our minds that our lives are transformed because of what we're learning from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at two episodes of compassion from Jesus this morning. One of them being a a centurion and his servant, and then the other one being a, a mom who lost her only son, who was also a widow. And so we're going to see that Jesus, he, he isn't a respecter of race. He isn't a respecter of a social standing or reputation or anything like that. Because the people that he heals, we're going to see how different they are from your typical, say, right-wing conservative Christian person, religious person. Very different from that, these two households. Back then it would have been this conservative Jewish, you know, Pharisees or whatever. Very different from the religious community. So let's just jump into it, starting the first two verses. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
Now keep in mind that this is a true story. This is not a parable where Jesus is trying to just teach from a story. This is history. This is an actual event. It happened. And this is what's recorded for us by Luke. Now some of you have experienced a time such as this when when you really care for someone really deeply and they are kind of at the end of their life. And you see that this moment is coming and you really value them and right before your very eyes you can see that their, the, the time of their life ending is coming physically. And so the night before, it might be a sleepless night because you, you know, you're just thinking about this stuff. It's on your mind all night. And then when you do fall asleep, it's just, it's just for the short time. And when you wake up, it's right back in your head again. How's so-and-so doing? You know, how, is, how is mom doing? Or how's dad doing? Or how's my brother or sister or my uncle or, ankle, uncle or aunt or grandmother, grandfather? You, you know, you have all these things and it's right back in your mind again. So, so it was for this centurion and his valued servant here. Now let's just name this servant, servant Herbert. Okay, we'll just give him a name. It wasn't his name, but it's just memorable for me. Herbert. So, so I can imagine the centurion, he, he's waking from his sleep, and then he sees another servant, and he asks him to come over, and he says, hey, how's Herbert doing? And, and the servant kind of gives this grim report on Herbert. Like, he, he's not doing well. You know, he's, he's probably going to die. And so you recall from verse 2 that this guy was a centurion, meaning that he had a lot of people that answered to him, right? A, a lot of soldiers, a lot of servants, a lot of people were answering to this guy. This guy would be equivalent to a sergeant. And then centurions had these different ranks, just like sergeants have different ranks too, right? And so a sergeant can be a sergeant major, which is the top sergeant, the top enlisted guy, non-officer guy is a sergeant major. And a centurion can have these same ranks. We're not told which rank this guy is, but it's the same thing. And, and it's really key here. When you join the armed forces, even in, in the United States, there is an enlisted person and there are officers. Officers don't necessarily have to go into the front lines in the battlefield and fight with the guys. Sergeants do. These are hardcore guys. It's the same thing with a centurion. It wasn't like officer training school or anything like that. This guy was on the battlefield. There was actually a high casualty rate for centurions. They were in the front line. They weren't just kind of like back there with officers and saying like, oh, if we attack around this way, they weren't strategist guys, even though that was part of it. But they were in the front line. The casualties were pretty great, actually, for centurions. So, so this is the type of guy, he, he, he led from the front of the battle, he, he led his legion, his, his crew here, and, and he started as a soldier, and he worked his way up, and now he was a centurion. It wasn't a guy that was handed that title, this guy worked for it. So, so you can see that this guy is a, a man of character. This guy is a, is a hard worker. This guy is a man of action. You can kind of get a sense of what type of guy this is. When you read the New Testament, whenever they reference a centurion, they're always highly regarded. So, so uh, Polybius, the historian, he explains these qualifications of a centurion. He says, They must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight. But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. So it gives you an idea of a centurion. A centurion was this leader who was respected by men. He, he earned it. 
He earned it on the battlefield. He, he worked his way up. And so he's a man of character, a man of action. Now you keep in mind that this teaching is right after Jesus taught about how actions speak louder than words, right? Remember last week's message? You can listen to that on iTunes. And here he's given a, a living an example of this type of a person. Now, so that we have this little background on centurions, let's get a little bit of background on the servants. A servant was viewed as a possession, a thing, just like any other thing, right? Like a, like a tool. So under Roman law, a servant was defined as a living tool with no rights. And this servant could be mistreated, even killed, and there was really no recourse for doing that. It was a possession. It's the thing. It's like a dog. And so when it came to estate management, William Barclay's commentary references this Roman writer who recommends this. He says, he recommends the farmer to examine his implements every year and to throw out those which are old and broken and to do the same with his slaves. So when a slave was too old or too sick or, or too whatever, just wasn't working anymore, throw him out like a tool. Just throw him out. So as a centurion, he would have had multiple servants. And it wouldn't be unusual for a, a man in his position to just kind of do this. He's sick, he's dying. Give me another one. I don't, we're wasting time here. Because right? can you imagine the energy and the cost and the time to nurse this guy back to health? He's, out of, he's not working. I've got to replace him. Not only that, but I got to get a, a couple people to nurse this guy. So they're, out, they're not working. I got to replace them. So you can imagine the cost and the effort and all this stuff that it, it takes to nurse someone back to help, health when he could have just said, get rid of him. Just give me a new one. I don't, I don't need this. And the other thing is they didn't even know what this guy had or why he was dying or anything. It could have been this illness. And if it was an illness, is it contagious? Is he going to wipe out all of my stuff? Is it going to get to me? So someone dying, like just get rid of him. I don't want this around. It's not only is it expensive, I don't want what he has to get to me. So it would have been much easier just to say, yeah, when you toss out the old tools, toss him out too. And so I think this guy, the centurion, this was a man of character. Right? He led men in battle. He knew the value of men. Because he fought right beside them all those years until he was a centurion. This is a testament of a character of a man that he's the same on the battlefield just as he is at home. He wasn't going to leave some guy on the battlefield. He was leading these guys. In order for them to follow him, he had to lead by example. He had to take care of them. He had to lead well, just like in his household. Once his household in order, you can't just kind of like toss him. It doesn't mean anything. Right? He wanted an orderly home. He, he probably just was being consistent in his life. He wouldn't leave a soldier out on the battlefield. He's not going to leave a servant to die in his home. Just a man of character. And so verse 2 tells us that this centurion highly valued this servant just as um, he valued a soldier on the battlefield. And so a consistent man, a man of character, who, who was the same at work as he was at home, can we say that about ourselves? That we have that character, that when no one else is watching, that's who you are, that's your character. Are we that consistent? 
In verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Now we're not told how this centurion heard about Jesus. I, maybe Facebook, I don't know. Uh, Yelp. Let's see. Uh, let's see the reviews. Oh, the reviews are mixed. Uh, the religious Pharisees say they hate him, and, but then these guys, um, he had, what, 100% healing rate? That's awesome. That's weird. Why do these guys hate him so much? Everything he's doing is really cool. I think Yelp just needs to work on their logarithms or something. And he heals on the Sabbath. Read this, guys. Come here. And it's free. And he's great for kids and groups. I mean, he's awesome. Right? So, so he's the one. Get me some elders of the Jews and go get him. We need to heal Herbert. And so there they are and who knows, I don't know how the centurion heard about him, right? Maybe he heard about him like how uh, Naaman heard of Elisha. You remember that story? You know, it's in Second Kings chapter 5. Um, you can go read it on your own. But kind of the, the historical matches here between Luke 7 and, and 2 Kings chapter 5, they're kind of uncanny. If you kind of look at them in parallel, it's, it's, like, it's like if there was this God and he kind of put these things and he and where the old testament sets forth the coming of jesus and and his perfection it's just really weird that way to think god had a role in all this right anyway naaman was a commander he was a commander in the syrian army and he was a leper and so you know he's sick but then he hears from his wife's servant this this girl who was basically kidnapped during one of these syrian raids it's this little girl from israel and uh, became uh, Naaman's wife's servant. And she's just kind of working and she just kind of says like, hey, there's this prophet in Israel, Elisha, that he can heal you of leprosy. And then just kind of go fetches the water and does whatever she does. And he's like, what? And maybe it was like that. Maybe maybe the centurion had these other servants, right? Like Gilbert and Robert and Albert and Dilbert and whatever. And, and one of them, one of them said to the centurion, you ever think about bringing Herbert to Jesus? And he could cure him. Like, I've heard of these stories. He, he's, he goes to these places. He casts out demons. He heals lepers and, and paralytics and all this stuff. He fevers and, and all this stuff. You, you should bring him. I'm going to go back to chopping wood. And so somebody told this centurion about Jesus. And I think it was Albert. But I, somebody told him about Jesus. He didn't just kind of absorb it through osmosis or have osmosis or something like that. It's like for us. Someone told us about Jesus. My dad told me. Someone told you, like someone tells everybody else about Jesus. And who have you told about Jesus this past week? That it would be a, a, a really good idea to request him as a friend. And that's essentially what happened to the centurion. Someone told him about Jesus. And then he inquired about Jesus. So initially he sends out this, this team of elders of the Jews. And this is not a dumb guy. This is a really bright guy. He didn't get to where he was being dumb and just all brawn. A centurion had to be, have some smarts too. I mean, you got to figure out how am I not going to get killed, right? So, and, and he was probably informed that, that Jesus was a Jew. And, and so he, he probably thought there, you know what, there's a, probably a better success rate if, if I sent this delegation of respectable Jews to Jesus that, than rather me going myself as a Gentile. I, I, I can probably help Herbert better that way. That makes sense. 
And so this guy, this centurion, he, he probably feels that he's not worthy to ask Jesus of this request. But, but this is a man of action. He knows how to get things done. So, so what does he do? Get me a delegation and I want some Jews who are elders and I want them to go to Jesus and ask them on my behalf. Verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So these Jewish elders, they're summoned, they're told what to do, and they listen, and they, they listen to the centurion, they find Jesus, they earnestly plead with Jesus, they make their case before Jesus as to why this guy deserves it, why he's worthy of it. This is something that actually makes me feel really uncomfortable. I don't know if it does for you. Let's read this again. Verse 4, He is worthy to have you to do this for him. And then other versions have, he deserves. Really? He's worthy? He deserves? He deserves something from God? He's worthy of something from God? For me, I feel really uncomfortable. If I plug my... I'm worthy. I deserve it, God. But how many of us approach Jesus this way? That, that, you know, Jesus, I am worthy for you to do this thing that I'm asking of you. I'm deserving for you to grant me this request because dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. Right? I'm worthy. I'm, I'm deserving because I'm missing all the pre-game football coverage of the NFC playoffs this morning. And I'm at church. I deserve this prayer to be answered. I sacrifice not watching television. I'm worthy of you. I'm deserving of you granting my request because, you know, it is a beautiful day. I can go mountain biking. I can go hiking. I could do something in the outdoors. But I came to worship you. I deserve, I, I deserve it. I deserve for you to come over to my place. I'm worthy of you to do something for me. So how many of us are like this? I'm worthy. I deserve it. Jesus, I'm worthy because I love my country. I've served my country. I love this city. I serve this city. I give to this city. I serve. I give to this church. I serve at this church. I do things for the church. I help pay for stuff at the church. Just like how the Jewish elders are presenting it here. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. What does Jesus do? He goes to his house. And I think a reason why he does is because it wasn't like the centurion came and said, I'm worthy. It's, it's these other guys. He couldn't control what these guys were saying about him. These guys really probably felt a gratitude for the centurion. They probably were just trying to use words to try to really convince Jesus, come on, you know, he, he put, built us our synagogue. I don't think it was necessarily the centurion's words as we're going to read on. So, I th- so Jesus was like, I'm going to ignore what you said. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. And so he goes in verse 6, And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Jesus goes to the house. Before he gets there, the second delegation is sent. And this time it's a group of friends. And they say to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is quite different from that first group, isn't it? It's very different. 
Now, why such a difference? First group mentions how worthy, how deserving that centurion. Second group comes out and says, He's, we're not worthy. He isn't worthy. You can't even come under his roof. He's not that worthy. So what's going on? What's going on here? Well, this centurion, he's very well accustomed. He, he knows very well the Jewish laws, the Jewish customs. And so he, he bankrolled the synagogue. Right? He helped them build it. So this is a guy who's very familiar with Jewish ways of life, customs, laws. And it's true that some Romans, they actually built synagogues to manipulate the situation. It's true. Right? Augustus, uh, he ordered leadership to kind of like appease the crowds by saying, hey, build them a temple, build them a synagogue, keep the peace. You know, that's the way you kind of do it. And, and there were some that didn't have the right intentions and, and they did this. And, and they didn't have a genuine uh, desire to serve the Jewish people. But here we have this guy, he, he built the synagogue, we don't know if, what his motivation was. And these Jewish elders also mentioned that he loved their nation. I'm thinking that this guy really did it because he cared. That's what I think. And maybe the Jewish elders did it out of fear. They're like, this guy's a centurion. We can be killed, do what he says, and really try to get Jesus here. So let's try to embellish it a little bit and get Jesus over here. I don't know. But anyway... We know that the centurion's a man of action. We know that he could have sent his own troops to just grab Jesus themselves. He could have just said, hey guys, go get Jesus for me. Right? And, and, but this is a thoughtful man. This is a smart man. And he seems to be aware of Jewish customs and laws. He sends out a delegation of Jewish elders. And why does he do this? I think he does this because of this reason. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. It's written... You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So things change, but then that first part of that sentence, right? You get from that first part of the sentence this understanding how Jewish law forbade and uh, a strict Jew from entering the house of a Gentile. And how Jesus just kind of blew that all, all out of the water. He was like, no, that's, that's not how it is. But this is their mindset. So Jesus wasn't concerned about being defiled going into a Gentile's house. He wasn't opposed to going into the home of someone who wasn't like him. In fact, he desired that. He was going into the house of sinners. He was always being uh, uh, accused of associating with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and all this other stuff, right? Are we like this? Are we like this? What, what's preventing us from entering people's homes? Are we the type that says like, oh, you know what? Uh, uh, we, we only fellowship with Christians. We, we only go, uh, what kind of music do you play at your home? Or what kind of movies do you show at your home? What kind of books are on your shelf? What kind of magazines are there? I don't want my kids exposed to that. Right? Are, are, are we even invited into non-Christians' homes? Do they even want us in there? Do, do people want us where they live? Because is this, is this something that we have earned? Just like Jesus. Jesus is invited, right? There are, there are some people who are like Jesus. They are invited into people's homes who are not like them. And actually who Christians would look at and say, like, why is he going into that house? That's not a good house. Things happen there. They earned it. 
I'm going to embarrass a staff member. Dave Kim. Our community organizer, because I want him to run for president one day. Um, Dave is so good at this. He is awesome at this. His testimony is so good amongst our community. They know he's a Christian. He's not hiding that. They know he's a Christian, but he's invited to be a board member of the Lake Merritt Business Association. He doesn't even own a business. (laughs) That's weird to me. But he's invited to be a voice of Lake Neighbors and the meetings, and we host them here. And he's, he's invited to so many people's homes in the neighborhood, he doesn't even have to pay for food anymore. Just, are we like this? Have we, have we been invited by people who are, aren't Christians in our, in our neighborhood, in our community? Are we, in, are we invited into their domain? Or are they thinking like, I'm not worthy because they have these beliefs and, and you know what, I don't want to make them dirty. You know, they're, they're not worthy to come into my house. We'll, we'll just, every, every once in a while, we'll visit them at the Lake Neighbors meeting or something. Are we like that? Are we that standoffish that people aren't inviting us in? Have we been a good testimony to our community that we're invited to speak into their lives and they'll actually listen? I remember Dave and I, we went over to a neighbor's house over here because he was complaining about how um, the, the neighborhood was getting dirty and stuff like that. And, and, you know, we just have this kind of relationship. And he invited us into his home, and I was sitting there. I was like, we're making progress. We, we're, we're being invited into people's homes. Like this, that is progress. It's not about growing our numbers in here. It's not about all this ministry outreach that if we don't get into people's homes, does it really matter? Because you, you haven't even reached their heart. It's just kind of like the thing out there. They over there. They, they feed homeless out there. They, they have this martial arts outreach. They, they tutor in schools. They, they do this. They have an urban garden. I can list a lot of things that we do. But, but are we inside? Are, are we on the inside? Or is it more of just like they? Or can they say like, yeah, we're part of the community. They're part of the community. And they come over. Like, is it really... A partnership, or is it more of like us and them type of thing? Right? Do, do we want people to get all their ducks in a row before we even dare enter their domain? See, we're, we're told by Jesus to go. Right? Go. Not stay here and wait. We'll wait for them to come. We'll build this thing. We'll build a big salt lick, and everyone can, from the community can just take a lick of salt and then go back. We're, not, we're, sent, we're sent to go and be salt, right? Go spread it. Being a big salt lick, that tastes awful. It's a little bit of salt is good. Right? When you're seasoning stuff, it's a little bit of salt. When you're doing light, a really bright light, ah. But if it's in a dark place and it's just a flashlight, that is good. That's awesome. Thank you for showing me the way. It's the same thing here. Big old light tower. Hey, take a look. It's too bright. I can't go there. Big salt lick. Take a lick. You taste awful. We got to go. We got to go. Get a little bit of salt, a little bit of light. Right? And, and then you, you kind of direct paths. You kind of make things taste a little bit better. And so we're told to go. The centurion understood that this strict Jews 
believed this. He had this conception of how strict Jews live. So him being wise, he sends these conservative Christian elders, or Christian, sorry, there's the same thing, religious elders, Jewish elders, in this expectation, because, you know, he probably has these ideas, and he probably doesn't know where Jesus stood, so he sends this, he sees that he's coming, he's like, oh, but I'm really not worthy of him coming, so I need to send this second delegation to stop him out there, and because I, I don't want, to, I don't want to defile this guy. And so, based on his understanding of Jewish law and humility, and and which we'll read more in the following verses, I think he sends this second delegation of friends to Jesus, who I also think were Jews, because I think he was being respectful still, maybe not the Jewish elders, but but his Jewish friends, and because I I think he was that wise and thoughtful. We're not told there anyway. It's, it really doesn't matter, but this is just my thought. But the differences between these two approaches is pretty vast, isn't it? First one, he deserves. He deserves. He's worthy. The second one, he doesn't. He's not worthy. He doesn't deserve it. And it's kind of funny that the more religious folks, right? These religious folks, these Jewish elders, the first delegation, they feel more of this kind of entitlement because of what one does. The second delegation, this group of friends, they don't feel that same entitlement. They know that this guy's a centurion. They know he built the synagogue. They know the same things that those Jewish elders knew. Isn't that kind of funny? Because do we feel this entitlement to tell God what we deserve? Do we feel entitled to tell God what we're worthy of? God, you know, I, I'm, I'm religious. I, I, am, uh, I go to church all the time. You can check my church attendance. I'm, I'm there all the time. I do morning devotions. I, um, I tithe like 10% of my gross. Not even my, my you know, my gross. And, and I do all these things and I, and I serve. I serve on things. I, I, I do whatever. And, and so, so bless me. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Let's not be so proud to think that it's anything but God's grace that we receive blessing. It's all God's grace. It's nothing you've done. It's nothing you've done. It's all God's grace. Not, we don't earn His love. We don't earn His love. It's all about Him. It's all about His grace. It's only Jesus that opened that up for us. It's nothing we do. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this, this, this man who recognized that, that his own power of authority to command soldiers or to command servants, it's like that with Jesus. That I think he identified with Jesus. Like, I, I do these things and I know you are a man of authority too, so you can do these things. And he recognized that he had these powerful words to command an entire legion on a battlefield. And so Jesus had this command that he can command the supernatural with his words. He's heard the stories by now. He can heal, he can cast out demons, he can do all these different things. And so this guy was a guy of great faith, you know, knowing that his authority produced these tangible results by his word, by his command, and that Jesus also produced these tangible results by his word, by his command, except that Jesus could also produce some results in the supernatural world. Because the centurion couldn't say, like, heal. He's dying. 
But Jesus, he could do it. And what he couldn't do for his servant, he had this complete confidence, this complete faith and trust in Jesus that he could do it if Jesus just said it. If you just say it, Jesus, it'll... Do we exercise this type of faith? You know, what, what, what does faith require? Faith requires humility. Faith requires humility. To acknowledge that there are things beyond us. Beyond what we can do. Beyond what, what we need. And we need to rely on God for those things that are beyond us. That there are circumstances that we just can't fix. That there are children beyond our grasp. That there are marriages beyond repair. That there are families that are just so messy. And there are money problems that we just can't dig ourselves out of. There are addictions that we can't break. There's all this stuff. Where can we go? To God. But you can only do that in humility. When you acknowledge that stuff, I can't do it. If you're like, well, God, you're just kind of a supplement. I can do this myself. But, you know, I just need a little bit of help. That pride, it'll kill you. It's in complete humility, knowing that you can't, God, there's nothing I can do. And the sin within us is bigger than we ever think. That sin within us, and Jesus is so much greater than that sin. And how many of us really believe that, though? How many of you really believe that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine? And there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that. You can't do anything for him to change his love for you. You What if if I go kill people? What if I go shoot shoot a congresswoman in the head and I kill a nine-year-old? Crazy thing? Jesus loves that guy. I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if my daughter was the one shot and killed if I could say that. That would be really tough for me. Jesus loves that guy, even on the cross. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Verse 9, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, there's only one other place where Jesus marveled. Do you know where that is? There's a lot of marveling in the Bible, but it's not usually by Jesus, usually by audiences or, you know, uh, his disciples. But there are only two places where Jesus marveled. Here's one. Do you know where the other one is? And it's not a good example. Right? The other one is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. And he's speaking of the people of Nazareth. So back there, he's speaking of their unbelief. Here in Luke chapter 7, he's speaking of how he's marveling at this guy's belief. Isn't that crazy? People of Nazareth, the people he grew up with, these Jewish people, he, they, they knew, they, they were religious. He marveled at their unbelief. This guy, a Gentile, he marvels at his belief. Marvels at the centurions, turns to the crowd that followed him, and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. An entire religious country, he hasn't found the faith of this Gentile. Now, this wasn't a slam by Jesus. The Jesus wasn't slamming the Israel, the entire country of Israel. This is a statement of how this guy's faith was bigger than that of people who, who need to see tangible proof before they can believe. 
Right? The centurion didn't need to see tangible proof. He didn't need to see physical evidence to believe what Jesus could do. He just heard the stories. He didn't witness any of it. Someone had to tell him about Jesus. He didn't even know about Jesus. Right? And, and so here we have this entire country who, who kind of has, has been following Jesus and been seeing all this stuff happening, curing a, a paralytic, curing lepers, casting out demons, he, healing a, Peter's mom from a high fever, all, or mother-in-law, all this stuff that they're seeing, yet they still don't believe. How many, when, you, when you see people and they're like, oh, I'll, I'll believe God when I can see Him. No, you won't. No, you won't. Right? All these people saw, they didn't believe. This centurion didn't saw, I believe. It's faith. It's faith. Verse 10, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Summarization. First delegation, religious Jews come to tell Jesus, come help, help this centurion guy out. He built our synagogue, loves our nation. He is worthy. Second delegation gets sent out to ask, ask Jesus, but say, don't come in. He's not worthy. Um, but um, we still need you to heal Herbert. But, but you don't have to come in. And then an interesting tidbit here. Do you guys remember Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2? It's found in verses 29 through 33. Let me just read that really quickly. Or 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What does this mean? It means Jesus is going to break through every barrier, every wall that prevents people from having a relationship with him. Jews who thought that it was, salvation was only for them. That salvation that, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples to the Gentiles. Jesus is going to break through that Judaism. He's going to break through that race, racism, that nationalism, all that heritage stuff that holds people back. And Jesus is going to bring his salvation to the Gentiles. Why is this so interesting? Because here's where it's happening. This is where he did it. He brought it to a centurion, a Gentile. Simeon's prophecy wasn't just something that an old guy who was on his deathbed or right before his deathbed was just saying. It's true. That prophecy came true. And he's reaching out to the Gentiles. He's breaking down those barriers so this salvation is open to all who accept him regardless if they were Jewish or not. And as long as they believe in him, he offers them his salvation. Verse 11, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now Nain is a day's journey from Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the water of the Sea of Galilee. It's just a gorgeous place. If you ever get to go there, it's one of my favorite places. Nain, tour groups don't go to Nain. But where Nain is, it's about six miles south of Nazareth. It's about a day's walk from Capernaum. And so you keep in mind that this Jesus was way in shape. He, a day's walk in the desert? I mean, this, this, guy, this guy is a bad dude. Anyway, archaeologists have found um, a cemetery of rock tombs about a ten-minute walk from Nain on the road to Endor, on the road to Capernaum, and which leads us to believe that this is the area that this widow was going to go bury her son. About a 10 minute walk there. And they were, they were on their way. Verses 12 and 13. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. So here we have this road to the cemetery of of the rock tombs that archaeologists have found. It's along this eastern gate. That eastern gate has not been found, so there's debate about that. But anyway, so here we have this funeral procession led by this band of professional mourners, including the mother who's probably right in the front. And they have their instruments and, and they're crying out with these frenzied shrills and, and people are just mourning along with her. And here we have this death of a mother's only son who was also a widow. This is important because Luke is trying to paint us a picture here. Luke is cluing us in on the hopelessness of this woman. Not only is she a widow, she also lost her only son. Imagine the grief of this mother. How she was dreading the night before that day where she was going to have to lay down her only son. When just, I don't know how long before she had to lay down her husband. So can you imagine the hopelessness? She, she was already a widow. Now she has lost her only son. This is important because times back then weren't like they are now. Here, in our time, a woman can provide for herself. A woman can go get work. She can do all these. Back then, when you lost your husband, you were a widow. Things kind of transferred over to your son if you had one. And then after that, you really didn't have any say into your properties. Right? So so it was her dependence on her son to take care of her for the rest of her life because she already lost her husband. So just this utter hopelessness and in her hopelessness there's Jesus. In our hopelessness there's Jesus. Now, some may focus on the dead boy in this story, but the focus of this story is really on the mother. Right? Look at verses 12 and 13 again. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. The focus is on the mom. This is about moms. So Jesus' compassion is on her. It's not on the boy. She's a widow who is sonless. And back then, you know, this is the epitome of hopelessness. But this is who Jesus came for. The hopeless. Remember Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That includes this widow. Who Jesus met on the worst day of her life. There is no future for her. Right? This, is, this is the epitome of sadness, of loneliness, of sorrow, of grief. And, and this considerable crowd that was with her. I don't think she was a woman of prominence or of means. I think this was a considerable crowd and the people of Nain because they knew what this meant for her. She's toast. 
we're going to mourn with her. We're going to try to empathize with her. This wasn't like a wealthy woman or something. If it was a wealthy woman, she wouldn't be living in Nain. Now there may be some people here who, who are going through some tough stuff, right? And there's a considerable crowd uh, with you like this woman had. And maybe it's, it's our church or another church and you're just visiting and it's another church or, or maybe it's your family or, or some friends. But the most important person with you is Jesus. He sees you, just like that verse says. He sees you, he has compassion on you, and he's saying to you, there is hope, just like he's saying to her, don't weep. He saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, don't weep. Right? And then that in your sorrow, in your sadness, in your loneliness, Jesus is with you, he's not forsaken you, and perhaps some of you are thinking like, you know, that's, that's just an easy Christian thing to say. I mean, what, what do you know? What does Jesus know? It's just, it's just one of those nice Christian things. Oh, Jesus is with me. Yeah, whatever. Just like this lady may have been thinking when Jesus said, do not weep. Like, what? Are you, are you, are you just being your religious rabbi self and just like no tact at all? Don't weep? What do you think this is? It's like staged? This is real. What do you mean, don't weep? Who are you? But you look at what Jesus does. Verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus not only goes up to this woman and says, Don't weep, he stops an entire funeral procession, a big crowd. What is he doing? I mean, you look at this guy and you're like, he's not my pastor. He's, he's, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And then the rooster crows three times. No, but um, Jesus halted a procession to the grave. He, he, he stopped the hearst. Right? This is so like a non-tactful. I mean, there's no tact here, right? Don't weep. And so just like he does for us, and he's the only one that, who can do this, right? He stops our progression to the grave. He's the only one that can. Who else in all of history resurrected? All of human history. If you want to prove Christianity wrong, just prove the resurrection wrong. Christianity's gone. All the spiritual leaders of world history, all the religious leaders of, of human history, all dead dead. You can go to their tombs. You can go to their grave sites. You, you can go see where they're buried. Not Jesus. That tomb's empty. And only Jesus conquered death. And if, if none of the others conquered death, how can they offer you anything but death? You don't have another alternative. So there's, there's no other alternative with them except by Jesus who resurrected, who conquered the grave. Therefore, you can have life. Now, there's an interesting thing to observe here about Jesus. Notice that in the first story with the centurion, Jesus dealt with a Gentile, which was a defilement for a strict Jew. And then in this second story, Jesus takes it a step further. I'm going to show you what defilement is. 
he does something that would defile any Jew, not just the strictest Jew, any Jew. He touched the beer. And I'm not meaning alcohol. The, the thing that holds a dead body. And, and I think this is, what, this is what made the bearer stand still in, in, in that verse, right? This, I think this is what made them stand still. He was like, they're like carrying, and he touched it. He was like, oh, what? He touched it. Cooties, right? Like the, the rabbi comes up knowingly and touches something that defiles Jews. Every Jew, not just like the strict Jews, like possibly a Gentile Jew relationship. Like, oh, I don't really believe that. This one, no, no, this one defies them all. And so these guys must have been dumbfounded. And, and, and he was like, what in the, what? Why would you knowingly defile yourself? That, and, and they must have think like, Jesus is nuts. Telling, telling the mom not to weep and then stopping this whole procession and then touching this thing. This guy... He's crazy. And then they must have thought that he was really nuts on this next thing. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. What? This, this guy is nuts. He's dead. He's dead. Right? What, what are you talking? You are so crazy. This guy's a lunatic. We're in the, we're in the middle of a funeral procession, dude. Get out of the way. Don't tell people not to weep. You know, let, let us get on our business. Can we just bury him in peace? Well, rest in peace. We're just a few minutes away. Get out of the way. And, and he's, all this stuff happening. And then verse 15, And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now we're freaked out. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're freaked out. That's... This, yeah. This is us. We were all dead at one point. We were all in a funeral procession to a grave at one point. And then he comes along in this in this hopelessness, in this hopeless trail, and he says, I give you hope. Do, don't weep. Don't worry. Stop the hearse. Get up. That's all of us. Every one of us. Every, every one of us, in some point in time, we have been spiritually dead until Jesus gave us life. And if he hasn't touched you, you are actually still spiritually dead. And so some of, some of you may, may still be dead because you haven't responded to Jesus. He has told you to get up and arise, but you didn't do it. So you're still dead. And so no one else can gain you entry into the kingdom of God except for Christ alone. I can't do it. There's no religious person who can do it. There's no preacher, teacher, no matter how good they are, that can do this. I can never talk you into the kingdom of God. Only Jesus. I can share with you. I can throw seeds out. I can, I can share with you the gospel. I can, I can do all that stuff. But the conversion within your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit... It's all Jesus. I have nothing to do with that. All I can do for you is point you to him. That's it. He does everything else. And then the choice is yours. Whether you want to listen to that voice of arise or not. You can still sleep if you want. And not get out of your coffin. 
And if you listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, you will have life. And if you don't listen to the voice, you just remain as you are. Right? You're spiritually dead in your sins. Jesus came to give us life. An abundant life at that. And you notice that the dead man sat up and he began to speak. I, I, I wonder what he said. I want to ask him when, whenever I meet him. You know, when Jesus said arise and, and you, what did you say? Well, he's like, man, it's good to be alive. You know, I wonder what he said. I don't know. But that's not the important thing. I'm just wondering. Jesus did the important thing. What did he do? Gave him to his mother. Isn't that interesting? What, what, what his mom must have done with him, right? Just... Just holding him and showering him with kisses. And, and he's like, oh, mom, please stop. I'm from all these people. Come on. You know, like, oh. Jesus didn't give him any instructions. He just gave him to her. He gave him to his mom. He, he took, take care of your mom. Right? Have, I have compassion for your mother who's already widowed and, and, and then she lost you. I brought you back to life. Take care of her. He didn't tell him to like, all right, come on, I saved you, so now follow the other 12 losers that I got with me and let's go. He, he didn't say that. Take care of your mom. Right? Take care of your business at home. And it's the same with you. Whether you're in the position of a mother, um, you know, you're hurting and you're grieving and you're mourning and you're lonely, and where Jesus sees you, he has compassion on you. It's not like he's going to do something and, and then he's selfish and says like, all right, um, I did what was really good for you, but I'm going to take it. He's looking out for you. So when you're in that place of hurt, he, he, he desires to give to you, to have compassion on you. Or if you're in the position of the son. Where, where you're spiritually dead and, and Jesus wants to bring you to a spiritual life and Jesus wants to transform your life no matter what circumstances you found out. We don't know how this guy got killed or how he died or anything like that. Um, but Jesus is there for you to, to raise you from your spiritual deadness to a spiritual life. Verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited the people. And this report <clears throat> him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now something about Jesus, he doesn't just talk about things. He acts upon things. He's a man of action. There are, there are these other religious, spiritual figures who they, they talk a lot about, about the the. the the, the problems of society or the quandaries of life and death and sickness and all this stuff, Jesus is the only one that, who actually kind of acts on it. Right? Like, dead? Ah, oh, you're alive. Right? Jesus acts with compassion on those who are hurting. He doesn't just talk about it. And Jesus seeks to comfort. He doesn't just say like, oh, and give you some nice words. There's some action behind His words. Do not weep. It doesn't end there. Here's your son. Being the only one to conquer death, he's the only one who can bring life out of death. It's not just talk. So you have all these other religious figures and things like that, wanting to talk about the afterlife, wanting to talk about all this stuff. It's all theory. But they're all dead. 
They didn't return back and say, like, yeah, it's true. What I, what I taught and what I said is true. Jesus comes back in the book of Acts and he shows himself to thousands of people. It's true. Thomas is like, I don't believe you. Oh, touch. Yeah, come here. Right? It's true. And so he didn't just talk about it. He did it. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God. Yes, he is saying this. He will act on this. He's not just saying, it's not just empty words. You can have comfort that what he said there is going to come to fruition. That he acts on his words. Now something great about Jesus is that he is going to reunite us with loved ones who are with him now. That we've lost here physically. And, And that we'll be able to see them again. Without the ailments that they suffered, we'll be able to see them again. My grandmother, who was on the deathbed, who winked to say that she knew what having Jesus in her life meant. My dad and I flew over to China. We were told that she was dying. We flew over to China. We got right there, and I was just praying to God, God, just, just let me share the gospel with her one more time. Just, I, I don't know where she's really at. She said she was, but I just want to just, just let me share with her one more time, and she's there. And the only thing she could, I asked her, asked her, you know, Grandma, can if if yes means one blink and no means two blinks, or the other way around, I don't remember what it was. And and so I was sharing the gospel with her, and and then she winked a yes, and then the very next day she died. I get to see her again. I've only seen her six times in my whole life because she lived in China, and I didn't get to go back. And we were, as I was getting older, I got to visit her more because I got to go there more. So I got to go there one time as a child, but then as an adult, I, I tried to go as much as I could. And I only met her six times, but we were so close. And this was a woman where, where you know, my, I have a tiger mom. And she says, you are going to marry a Chinese. And they respect elders. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm at my grandmother's house. I'm like, Grandma, what do you think if I dated non-Chinese? She was like, as long as you're happy. I was like, wait. Mom, Grandma has something to say to you. Katie and I are married now. Katie's not Chinese, and we're, we're happily married. But all those people that we will get to reunite with again, people we saw waste physically right before our eyes, we get to see them again. People we saw suffer through their infirmities, those in Jesus, we will see them in perfection. Not that stuff anymore. Not all the tubes and things that we last remembered seeing on them. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lies and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you believe what he just said? Do you believe you're more sinful than you ever thought you were? And even though you are sinful, Jesus loves you no matter what. And that he is there on the roadside to your road of hopelessness, to your grave. And he says, I want to give you hope. Don't weep. Stops your funeral procession, says, get up 
and then he assigns you to go do something. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us and how deep it is that there is nothing that we could do to earn it and there is nothing that we could do to lose it. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to absorb what you have for us and then share that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would continue to work on their heart and their mind, that you provide them a resurrected life, and I ask God that you would just work on their hearts and that they would continue to seek, that they would continue to ask questions. In Jesus' name, amen.